So two of the most important principles from cognitive science help make that decision. And the two principles are one, something called distributed learning, which is this idea that if you actually want to remember what you learn, you should learn or review over time. Don't cram the night before, but learn for days and days or weeks and weeks in little bite-sized pieces. Mm -hmm. And the second principle is something that you might hear described as the testing effect or retrieval practice, which is the idea that if you want to, again, learn and use information, you have to practice it and actively engage with it and not just listen to a lecture or just read a page in a book. This is Liz Weaver, and you are listening to the Learning Success Podcast, an information-packed podcast with the latest news, information, and tips to help you overcome a learning difficulty. For anyone suffering from a reading difficulty, writing difficulty, a math difficulty, a focus problem, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, or ADHD, this is the place for you. The Learning Success Podcast is brought to you by LearningSuccessSystem.com. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Success Podcast, where we learn to embrace your child's brilliance and unleash their full potential. Today, we have Paul Muma from Serigo, and Serigo is an adaptive learning platform which is, uses AI and cognitive science to improve remote learning outcomes. Paul is going to talk to us about Serigo, how Serigo has transitioned to remote working, and we'll also talk about remote learning. Since Paul has access to a great deal of data and research on the subject, I think this is something that everyone can learn from so that we can all find the silver lining in this situation. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for having us, Phil. Thank you for coming along. So um, let's talk about, first off, we'd like to talk about, about your company's transition to remote learning or to remote working, and then also about what you do with re remote learning. I think these are really both really important subjects for a lot of people right now. So can you tell us to, to start, like, where were you? Uh, I know you're being a, a, a technology company. Where were you before you started? What part of your staff was, was already remote working and what was in office? Absolutely. So Sarago is based in San Francisco and the majority of our team is co-located. We work in an office right downtown in San Francisco. We've generally had a flexible enough policy where on some days, some folks are working from home, but primarily the San Francisco Bay Area team would be in an office together every day. About a third of the company, though, has been distributed from the beginning, and they're in a number of states across the U.S. So I would say we were partially familiar with some of the unique challenges or opportunities with working remote. But in mid-March, we accelerated that and suddenly had to learn how to get everyone on the same page working remotely. And the kind of interesting thing which you alluded to is, as a company, we've been helping our customers bring their learning and training online for years. And we've been that agent of change, helping them make that adjustment. And we sort of laughed realizing that in some ways we had to help ourselves with a comparably big change, moving our whole company online. Uh, and that gave us, I think, some new empathy for what it means to change the way you work or the way you learn and doing that stuff online for sure. Right, I bet that it was huge em empathy. So we'll jump into what you learned there. That's a that's a great point. Um, when did you, when did you actually start the transition? Did you see it coming or? Uh, or? I think the, the the Bay Area the reputation seems to be accurate, which was we all seemed to know something big was coming a little bit on the early side. So mm -hmm. I think it was by March sixth or seventh 
we were getting ready to go remote and we began doing some dry runs and practice events as a team, thinking about how we'd run our meetings all from our own homes. And it was by the middle of that second week in March, the 13th or so, that we were fully remote. So you, you were fully remote within in under, in under two weeks, 10 days or so? That's right. That's, that's, um, so was there any downtime? Uh, you know, there was a couple days of adjustment where some folks began to come in a little bit less and then we moved to the complete remote operation a few uh -huh. days later. So, but the business kept on going continuously, nothing, nothing stopped and, and yeah, speed kept up. Great. How, how much contact do you have with uh, your customers? Is there a lot of customer service in that going day or is it mostly all the tech that does the work? There's, we, there's a lot of customer success and support. Although, to be honest, we've done a lot of that through video calls and phone calls for a while, even before this crisis. So luckily, staying in touch with our customers barely skipped a beat. In fact, we've tried out some new things in the last couple of weeks, recurring office hours and open webinars and new ways of getting folks engaged, which have worked really well. But luckily, we didn't have a lot of in-person engagement uh, that we needed to rely on beforehand. Okay, good. So in the transition, what, what were the biggest roadblocks to getting transition you know for us as a company because the majority of our team is used to working in the same place that bumping into one another sharing ideas quickly grabbing someone to spend a few minutes in a room talking about a problem or an idea that was the biggest gap we noticed right away mm -hmm. you know you can have planned meetings and you can join by video and those can happen just about as well as they would in real life but it's the spontaneous stuff looking across the floor and seeing who else can help with the problem that is lacking so that was the first, and I would say, biggest challenge. And we've been creative in trying to get beyond that. Um, and so in the last four or five weeks, we've tried some things, including we have a video chat channel that's open all the time, and we call it the water cooler. And it allows people, if they have a few minutes free or they're just working on something quietly, but they want to say hi to some other folks, they can jump into that video channel and just see who's there. And that's a crude way to approximate the good serendipity of walking in and seeing someone in the kitchen or in the office, but it works surprisingly well. And that's been one approach we've taken. And we also use tools like Slack to kind of in a chat format, keep up with each other. And there's a lot higher volume of, call it, you know, non-mission critical stuff people are talking about right now, just to keep conversations going and sort of stay in front of one another. Uh, and that's helped everyone feel, I think, pretty well connected. We ran a survey to the team at the end of last week, just checking in on this specific question of how does it feel to be all on our own versus how it felt when most of us were in the same office. And on, on balance, the team has said, you know, it feels a lot less bad than we feared it would. And there are some trade-offs, but this is, we're feeling pretty well connected and, and things are going pretty well. Do, so how much, how much uh, usage do you get out of the water cooler? And, and is that like casual conversations or is that, um, yeah. Is it just socialization mainly or, or does it's, it's the whole mix. So I'll say we get waves of usage. And one thing we've learned is everyone knows there's a always open water cooler channel and that's really helpful, but it's not a muscle we're familiar with just jumping into a video chat just because. And so mm -hmm. something we found can help is sometimes people will take it upon themselves just to remind the group in Slack, which is our chat tool. Hey, I'm going to be in the water cooler, cooler channel for a few minutes while I eat lunch or, Hey, I'm going to be in there as I start the day. And then you might see a good handful of people jump in as well. And that 
is a little bit less spontaneous, but it still has the same effect. The fun thing is, to your question, is it social or other stuff? Everything gets discussed in there. So I've been in that channel and watched our engineers talk to a customer success person about a particular bug that we're hearing about from a customer and they're troubleshooting. I've been in that room, the video chat room, and I've been showing a presentation I was working on for our board to some other folks just to get their feedback. So just kind of an informal audience. We have one member of the team who's a fantastic guitarist and he has done a couple of five minute concerts where he'll jump in and just relax for a few minutes, but we'll tell folks he's playing the guitar in the chat and people will come in and listen. So it's the whole range. That's fantastic. What tech are you using for that? We've been using Zoom. Okay. So you just leave the, the meeting, a meeting open all the time and... Yeah, exactly. Oh, and we, we have the URL for that meeting in a place where people can see it. And then we just periodically remind them to jump in if folks are in there. That's a great idea. I'm going to use that one. So, um, so do people um, simulate the, 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 like the hallway meetings by, is it, are they more apt to just fire up a quick video call or people not used to that yet? I mean, I know the formal ones are always there. We're going to have a webinar this and then, but I mean, just more like, hey, I want to talk for two seconds. And does that so happen? This is, this is an interesting question. I'll give you a hopefully pretty quick answer. And then I'll tell you something that reminds me of some of the challenges with learning online that's related to it. Okay. So your question, are people jumping into a quick video chat or what's going on when there's something to discuss or resolve? Our first instinct was to do that. Someone has something they need to troubleshoot, suggest a quick call, video call, get into it with a few people, try to resolve it, maybe keep it quick and then and move on. What we found after a couple of weeks is sometimes the whole rigmarole of setting up a video chat or a meeting mm -hmm. might not be the best way to sort out a problem. And sometimes just having a simple conversation or a document someone has written up with the problem and letting people come in and add comments or questions in a written form on their own time is sometimes mm. a more efficient way to solve a problem unless it's a burning issue that needs to be solved in five minutes. Sure. And what that's been reminding us is sometimes we have some instincts about how we think we're supposed to work. And those instincts are built on the world of being in person and being in a room where the most efficient way is probably just to grab someone and chat for a minute by their desk. But once you're remote and you're more relying on technology, there might be better instincts that we can cultivate. And one of them may be, it's, it's useful to write down the issues you're thinking about more frequently so you can quickly share that doc with someone and let them weigh in when they have five minutes and in an asynchronous way, collaborate on problems during the day or even throughout you know, the day and the night. And that looks a bit different than the way you'd work if you were thinking mostly about eight or nine hour days in a physical office. Right. So the kind of interesting thing for us as a company is we're thinking more and more, that's not so different from the way we encourage our customers to think about learning with technology. They got a lot of instincts that may be good instincts in a world where the only way to learn is in a classroom with people or a house with your kids. But once you're thinking about how technology can come into the mix, there may be different instincts about learning a bit more on your own or in different schedules and different bite-sized pieces that actually work really well or better once you have the technology to make it happen. So it's kind of a paradigm shift for work and for learning. I bet, I bet. So my guess is that people are gonna obviously think more about the question and, and maybe even answer a lot of their own questions just simply by writing it down. Is that? Yeah. Is that something? There's, there's there's a bit of that for sure. It's like they call it the rubber duck test. If you're a software engineer and you're having trouble with some code and you can't figure out why, sometimes they'll recommend, 
you talk to your rubber duck. It's not even a live person, but just yeah. the act of talking to someone. You work through the process, you might find an answer on your own. And I think something is similar when people are writing down or documenting their issues. Sometimes they, they even solve their own problem. Yeah, I find that's myself. With, with mentors that I have, I'll typically will have a question, and then, but then as soon as I think about asking the mentor, I'm like, well, I know what he's going to say and, and answer. So it's the same, because I know their voice, you know? <laughs> so, right. So, yeah, that's, that's probably makes things far more efficient, I would imagine. That's, so before you, you mentioned that we might hear some screaming children in the background. Let's let's yep. talk let's talk about that um, about when parents with younger children are working at home um, like how is that working for them how are, are they keeping the the children doing what they need to be doing and and them during class sure during so yeah so I can speak to my individual experience since I have I have three little kids I'll talk a little bit about how some other folks at Sarago with kids have worked and that's probably my relevant field of experience. Um, I have three kids, all of whom are under the age of four. So my kids are real small. Mm -hmm. The eldest, almost four years old, he's in that, you know, early learning mode. Talk great, watch stuff, think about stuff, learn stuff. The younger two are a bit younger. They just got to be watched. So yeah. I have a busy young kid house. Some other folks at Sarago have kids that range in age from similar toddler age through grade school and some in that middle school bucket. And I think as a group of parents, we found some challenges in common and some things are a bit different depending on the age of our kids. You know, the big, the big common challenge is in a world where those kids are not going to school or not going somewhere for care, it's our job to give them good attention and, and you know, formation, whatever that's gonna be, while we try to do our jobs. And that's never easy. Um, and I think what we found generally as a group is it's helpful to be transparent with our colleagues that we can't work in the same long, unbroken blocks of time that we otherwise would because mm -hmm. of that. That actually goes back to my comment around the best way to work when you're remote in the first place. And as it turns out, maybe it's not just because you have kids working a little bit less synchronously, but more asynchronous in the blocks that work for your schedule can be a pretty effective way for a team to operate. And certainly for us parents, that might mean like in my case, a couple hours in the morning, I may be watching my kids while my wife is doing work, and then we'll flip in the afternoon. And that means I'm present in different ways for the team at different points of the day. The as other well, thing that I, yeah. The as other well thing as present for your kids, right? Exactly. Yeah. And being present for the kids, that's been an interesting thing to compare notes on. Depending on the age of these our kids, the reality is the world is in a pretty unusual place right now. But the younger your kids are, the less aware they are of what's going on outside and the more they're aware of whatever's going on at home. So I feel lucky that my kids are young enough to barely even know anything is wrong with the world. They're happy they're getting a lot of good time with mom and dad, and that gives me new energy to try to use the time effectively and help them learn new things or practice new things. Some of my other colleagues have kids that are a bit older, they're a bit more fearful or fretful about what's going on in the world around them, and that gives my colleagues extra reason and energy to try to spend good time to be of comfort and you know, source of stability for those kids at this time. So it's it's really it depends on the age of the kid, but this is a moment for opportunity for parents to do things a bit differently if they can. Yeah, yeah. So two important points there. You, you've mentioned the asynchronous uh, a few times, and I know there's you know old techniques like the Pomodoro uh, a technique for uh, that increase um, efficiency of working. 
So, I mean, this may be a big opportunity. We actually, my wife and I actually created a product in 07, which was called BreakPal. And the idea was to, it would, it was just, a, it was a timer, but then it presented you with desk exercises. They were based on yoga hmm. and Kung Fu and Tai Chi. So every 20 minutes it pops up, you do a three minute exercise. Um, again, the idea was that you have these efficiency, you know, you start your day off, you're, you got, you got plenty of coffee and you're going along, but your efficiency drops off all the day. And you, you mentally try to fight that all day long when really yeah. just working in the way you're saying asynchronously, asynchronously is, uh, is probably a really fantastic solution for that. Absolutely. It's, it's really interesting. The, I think one of the ways that that phenomenon is described is um, psychologists will talk about ego depletion, which, as I understand it, essentially means as the day progresses, the amount of mental energy you might have to make decisions and get things yeah. done tends to deplete for all the normal reasons. You kind of get tired out, stretched out through your day. Especially and in willpower, right? Exactly, willpower especially. And so finding ways to counteract that natural ego depletion is important for productivity and also for learning and other things. And so it's funny, actually, the reason this is less random than it sounds is a year or so ago, a lab of psychologists at the University of Toronto were looking at the evidence for or against these theories of ego depletion. And ironically, one of the best data sources they found to try to run some experiments was Serigo data. Because Serigo as a tool is all about learning in relatively short bursts across all parts of the day. And this lab ended up looking at some of the data we collect around how well people are able to learn throughout the day to assess how much ego depletion affects things like how well you can learn. Not so surprisingly, the result I think is what we'd expect. You know, people tend to have more energy either at the start of their day or towards the very end of their day when other concerns like their kids are off to bed and out of the way. And that's when you can learn most productively. But the secret is in all things learning, short bursts that are focused is usually Absolutely. better than a you know, multi-hour block. So that, that feels the same for me from how I get work done when I'm at home and trying to take care of my kids as well. Short bursts, broken up, that's the recipe. Right, that, that is, uh, this is fitting with, so my, my passion, I actually teach, um, my passion is, is a very rare form of Kung Fu. It's a very difficult form of Kung Fu. Um, and, you know, people have this conception that if from the movies or whatever, that Kung Fu are, martial artists train for hours and hours and hours and on it on end. And really my success in it was I would, I would train in literally five second in, increments, awesome. you know, five seconds, but constantly all day long to have these little thoughts. And that was where, where the, um, the, the concept of break pal that we did came in because we realized that learning was so fast by doing that. And it didn't require discipline. It required habit. Right. So, um, so yeah, that absolutely coincides. It's really uh, interesting. This could really revolutionize learning. I see. So, mm -hmm. um, yep. the go, going back to the, to the parents and kids, um, do you have any advice for it? So, I can see, I, I see a lot of things going on, people mentioning like on Facebook and about the, um, their kids distracting them from work and all that. And I, and I can kind of visualize that some of these interactions may not be very positive, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
do you have any advice for parents on how to make sure that that is psychologically advantageous for their kids rather than making the kids feel like, you know, my, my, my dad's paying attention to work when he should, why isn't he, why am I not more important? That sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, as you can imagine, I, I have a lot of sympathy for any of these parents, myself included, who feel or even worry that they're not being positively attentive enough to their kids. It's such a struggle. And probably at the end of every day, every parent thinks, ah, did I not do well enough on this each day? So maybe I'm too forgiving, but I, my first piece of advice, which I try to remind myself of is you have to forgive yourself when you don't think you've done a good enough job. The last time you were engaging with your kids, you can try again, try again. Yeah. That's kind of like everything in life. You, you want to learn, you want to improve, you want to build a habit, forgive yourself for not doing a great job, do it better the next time, the next time. Practically, I'm lucky my wife and I, you know, luckily I, I have a wife and we're both at home and we're both working, but we're both trying to watch these kids. So one of our coping mechanisms is we try to let someone be all on while someone else can be all off. Yeah. And that means even if it's only for a, a shorter window, maybe it's a one hour block and not eight hour block, I might know I have a whole hour and I don't need to worry. If I hear kids who are fighting rough together, I'm not going to run out and try to help. I know my wife's going to do it and vice versa. That trade, letting someone turn off for a little while, if you have the luxury of someone else who can be part of the mix, that's huge. And then the other part is I've tried to help remind team members at Cerigo that have kids that the world doesn't expect us all to be working in the same way right now and reminding yourself that you're not meant to be fully on and just as available to the team means if you're not going to be able to be fully on with the team, go be fully on with your kids and try to remind yourself that sure, you may be worrying about work in your back of your mind, but try to just focus on the kids when you can. And then when you're back and you got a few minutes or a bit longer to deal with work, focus on the work. And that's, that's, again, it's a mindset shift because most of us are not used to a world where we're trying to go back and forth between productive work and being really good, productive, educating parents. So reminding ourselves to do that and, and don't do both. Just don't do both. If you're with the kids, focus on them. When you're doing work, even if it's a short burst, that's when you focus on work. Right. Sounds easy, but it's not. No, but it's fantastic. That falls into Cialdini's work where he talks about what we focus on is what our brain assumes is, is important. So, right. um, and it's all about habit building, like you said. You know, uh -huh. As you do something, if you build a habit which shows your team, there may be 15 minute blocks kind of randomly where it's hard to reach you and you don't respond quickly in Slack. And that's because you're focusing on your kids at the right time. It becomes a habit. The team will reform its activities around that new habit and things will evolve and it's going to work out. I would imagine just having the right mental attitude for that, of, of accepting that as the way it is rather than, oh, this is a problem, that it mm -hmm. could, could, be, uh, could really make the shift. Yes. Yeah, I think so. So um, what, what other policies and practices have you done at Sarago to help parents? Well, one thing that we're, we're going to be continuing to do is we haven't changed some of our policies around things like new parent leave. And we have luckily some employees who are, you know, imminently or in the next few weeks expecting to have a first child or have another child. And our view is just because we're theoretically all at home uh, to begin with doesn't make it any less helpful for a new parent to go take time off and really focus on being a new parent. So that's something that Again, it's, it's not a change in our policy, but the world has changed a lot and we've decided it's important not to change that policy. So we're still encouraging that kind of leave. 
we've always been a bit flexible as to how people take that leave. Do you take a couple of weeks all at once? Do you shift your schedule for a longer number of weeks? That kind of flexibility is still part of the plan. And we're encouraging the newer parents to do that for however long this new world um, kind of is the case around us. Sure, sure. What um, other advantages that we haven't talked about for, for the employees do you think in this new work environment as well as for the company? What, what's better? Yeah, I think in general where things are better, whether or not someone's a parent, whether or not they have kids, what can be better is the flexibility to use bits of time throughout the day in the most efficient way. I mean, and this is about whether you're working productively by not trying to work for eight hours in a row. It's also mm. things like if someone has a good habit of exercising or of trying to eat healthy, the constraint of having to do all that around your commute time or time being in an office is freed up. Now, if you'd like to eat healthy, and that might mean you'd rather spend 15 minutes preparing a lunch in your kitchen rather than reheating something in the office, you can do that. And it's not really going to change your productivity for the day, but it's going to make you feel happier and healthier. If you want to go for a run, you can do it when it's bright and sunny and warm at 2 p.m. and not at 6.45 when you get home and it's getting dark. That's healthy. That's helpful. And the same certainly goes for kids. You know, I've been lucky that with commuting distance and time, I'd always see my kids in the morning and at the end of the day. But now I see them in different parts of the day when they have different energy and when they are going to be doing different things. And that gives me a chance to do some things that otherwise I couldn't do during the work week. So reminding ourselves of whether it's related to kids or not, what we can do now that we couldn't do before with honestly a minimal impact on the amount of work we do in the day, that can be really healthy. Yeah, I, I think health is a, is a huge one. That That's actually my lifestyle I, because I do re work remotely and I, I do, you know, like the, the interval, I will garden throughout the day. I will cook extremely healthy meals. And, and so, um, you know, personally, I've been pushing people to, to this, is a, this is great. This is a benefit. You can change your lifestyle for. You uh, guys are the pros. You guys have seen the benefits for a while now. And the rest of us are just sort of catching up in an accelerated yeah. fashion as the world forced us to. But I think there's been a lot of, there's a lot of good reasons to work in this way to begin with. Mm -hmm. Right. And what about for the company? Yeah, you know, for the company, our core work, which is building software, um, doesn't change. It doesn't change whether we're remote. Hold on one second. Do you have a smart child who is struggling in school? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you feel like the struggle is holding your child back from their true potential? Maybe the anxiety and worry over your child's future just beats you down every day. You don't have to live that way. Learn how to stop a learning disability from becoming a life disability. A child with a learning disability is stressful for the child and the parent. The disability may be eroding their confidence and shattering their self-esteem. Other people may perceive your child as unintelligent and antisocial. If not addressed and fixed early, the child may develop permanent challenges later in life when looking for a good job or meeting a potential spouse. Our current school system does not know how to properly help our children, but at Learning Success, we do. We've created a system you can easily do at home with your child, and with just 15 minutes per day after school with your child, you can save them from a life of struggle and heartbreak. 
Learn how to unleash your child's potential and embrace their true intelligence. As a special gift for being a loyal podcast listener, we're going to give you a free trial of the Learning Success System. Try it out absolutely free for 15 days. If it is not the perfect fit to help your child succeed in school and in life, just cancel before the trial ends and pay nothing. You even get to keep the free bonuses. Go to www.learningsuccesssystem.com forward slash podcast to get your free trial now. You'll be so happy you did once you see the great grades your child is capable of getting. Imagine being so proud of your child when they bring home a great report card and hand it over with a beaming smile. Get your free trial now at www.learningsuccesssystem.com forward slash podcast. You've got nothing to lose except the stress and anxiety that is holding you and your child down. I'll see you there. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, how is it going for the company or what are some advantages? The core task of building software and delivering it is just as doable when you're all remote. So that's great. That means what we try to do is build software that helps people learn. We can do that with no, no change. In terms of connecting with customers, helping them think about the best way to use Serigo in their classroom or in their or workplace or even on their own, we're pretty much able to do that without change as well. Good video calls, webinars, office hours, we can do all of that. That's all great. If anything, what else has been good is this has pushed our team to be creative and thinking about the most efficient way to help the world know what we have to offer and decide if it's the right fit. And we've probably made more experiments and more improvements and you know, producing some resources and creating webinars and setting up office hours to help a lot of people quickly understand Serigo. We've probably done more of that in the last five weeks than we would have because we realized we had no choice. And so that's been healthy. It's been a good kind of kick in the pants and get us to think differently and try new things. And some of it's worked out. Good. Do, do you see, what do you see as disadvantages that would be, you know, both solvable, solvable disadvantages and things that may not be so solvable? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. Where Serigo has tried to be unique as a company is really in taking proven principles of cognitive science or learning science and it combined them with all the best technological advances that we can to make a really flexible experience that will work for almost anything you're trying to learn. And that combination of learning science and technical opportunity does require a fair amount of R&D and thinking and experimenting and testing and trying. And it's hard to approximate a great brainstorming session, sitting in a room, trying out ideas, it's hard to do that as effectively on Zoom video. You can have plenty of other meetings that feel like they're almost as effective, but really good brainstorming, for whatever reason, it's harder to do than we felt we've been able to do it in person. So does that mean we'll be less innovative? Probably not overall, but it may feel like it takes more work and takes just a bit more time and energy to try to work through ideas and, and actually make stuff happen. And that's so important to us as a company is being ahead of the curve and providing new opportunities um, so it's important for us to get right, but it doesn't feel easy. But you, in, no, uh, any ideas on why brainstorming sessions are not? I, I would bring it back to instinct and habit. If we had started our life as a company that only had employees distributed around the world, we probably would have built muscles all about brainstorming in a remote way that would feel good. 
But when you have the luxury of being in the same room, there's probably something around even body language and just... how enthusiastic is the person <laughs> to the idea you're trying to think through out loud. And then if they're enthusiastic, you talk about it more. I think it just, it works differently when you're in the room. I don't know why. I was exactly going for body language. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, you can read so, we read so much and, and communicate so much more through it. Yeah. Yep. Interest, interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, to, to give you a bit of background, I've been teaching my form of Kung Fu online for six years now. And so, um, you know, obviously we have to read the body well, and, and it is, yeah. it's definitely far, I think so, so much of that is ingrained, is working at such a subconscious level and our subconscious is not picking it up in D, 2D. It's used to the, the, the 3D, it's not programmed for it. So maybe we'll adapt as a species or not, I don't know. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's good on you for having tried the experiment for a number of years already of teaching something inherently physical at a distance and using video. I, I'm sure it's more possible than we would fear it would be, but it's, it's not easy. Got to find ways. Yeah, it is. It's um, one of the things that we've learned, you know, and, and every time I tell somebody I teach Kung Fu online, they're, they give me this weird look and say, I don't, I didn't think that was possible. What's the punchline? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what's the punchline? Right. And part of that came from one of our advantages was is that the early lessons were on VHS and I'd watched many of them and they were absolutely a joke. Mm -hmm. And so people got this idea well, of it. Well, the problem was a large part of the problem was not video. It was the storage amount. So my beginning class alone has over 200 hours of video and that's just to get into like kindergarten class. Right. So right. you couldn't do it on VHS, VHS. Um, so we've successfully taught Kung Fu online for just in a handful of test students. That's all we've done. And we wanted to see if I could bring somebody, somebody through. So I think if, if it can be done with that, a physical science and you know, what, what couldn't it be done that way? So. Absolutely. That's, that's very cool and creative. And so much of our work at Sarago is about how many things can you help people learn effectively using primarily technology. And Sarago is often just one piece of learning rather than the whole experience. But we uh -huh. find there's quite a lot people can learn and practice digitally. And that's great. Opens up all kinds of new opportunities. It, it sure does. Um, do you see this uh, changing or do you see this as something here to stay once once everyone has the opportunity to change how much of it will stay i think it's going to change some behavior for sure i think we are as a company individually we see that there's plenty of silver linings that as much as we like being together we get along we find some efficiencies i think we're all finding particular benefits to having more flexibility i will be really surprised if we move back to a identical way of working to what we did before this i bet we'll have minimally more flexibility we might even build a much more by default working remote uh, culture. I think that could happen for us. And I think when we talk to our customers who are schools and companies and organizations, a lot of them are still in the adjustment phase. There's a lot to work through. But I think some of them are seeing that there are some silver linings or some advantages as well, or just that their business is changing or that the number of students they have may be changing. And I think things will be a bit different, even as the world gets a little bit more back to normal. Right. Well, it's a, it's a forced adoption. Um, yeah. And I've seen, I've seen, uh, you know, my, my wife works in the mortgage industry and 
the particular company she worked for, the founder had put tens of millions of dollars into technology and, and it was not being used at all. <laughs> so uh, they were less than 20% of what they were doing was through that. And now it's bumped up to 80%. And, and I see that company as a whole, just fortunately for them, they had it in place. And the only thing that, that didn't, well, that wasn't working is that it was new and people didn't want to want the change. And then they had to, to change. They had see, no choice, right? They had, they had no choice. I see the same thing in Kung Fu in that I've been teaching a handful of students and then I've got all these black belts that just wouldn't look at what I was doing. They're like, no. And now all of a sudden they're all in my group and loving it. You know, it was just right. the forced adoption changed um, so much. I see that happening in the schools. I've seen like school principals and teachers talking about really creative ideas. Um, do you see like other industries that it, it's, that forced adoption was was ready for well you know the industry i can speak the best to is industries that rely on you know tools for learning and i'll tell you something that i could imagine changing more because of this Mm -hmm. even in the area of education high school middle school not just higher ed where we do have some customers no i'll tell you something that's always been an advantage of something a tool like serago if you use serago which is all about getting ongoing practice and reinforcement of what you're learning and has the benefit of letting our system get a really good estimate of what you know and how well you know it. That experience has always been a pretty good alternative to a traditional one-time test that in many ways we have data that suggests it can be a better measure of what you actually know rather than the randomness of whether you score well on a test or not. That's true even before people were forced to learn at a distance. But something we're seeing is some of our school customers who are fearful about whether using a traditional test is the right approach, given that students are on their own, theoretically could spend more time trying to cheat or get their way around an exam. Yeah. Some of those schools are realizing, you know, maybe this is a great time to use experiences like Serago and the data that comes out of them as an alternative. And that's going to be our measure of whether someone has learned enough to progress or to do, you know, X, Y, or Z well in a class. So it could be that what's gonna go on here is teachers, schools will think differently about what's the right way to gauge who knows what. What's the best set of tools or the best time and place to use assessments or not use assessments to make those decisions. And if in the end, what they turn to are the best ways to let students really demonstrate what they do know and not penalize them for having one bad luck day when they take a test, that'd be a really nice change and a good outcome. So I could see some things like that changing in behavior on the education side for sure. So let's, at this point, can you give us a, a, an overview? Sarago is getting more and more interesting as you, as you speak here. So can you give us a, an overview of how it works? What? Sure. Yeah, so we are a, a software platform that has three components. You can author, create a learning experience in our system. We deliver that learning experience through our mobile apps or through your browser on your computer. And we have data and analytics for teachers, for managers, or for the students themselves to see the system's estimate of what they know and how well they've learned it, or where they need to spend their time. And the goal of the system as a whole is to give the learner, the student, the most efficient and effective learning experience possible. By using these principles of learning science and cognitive science, we wanna give them the most high value thing to do for just a couple minutes at a time so that whenever they log in, and use Serago, 
they'll either learn something new or they'll practice and review something they've already learned and is designed to make sure they learn everything they need to know as efficiently as possible. That's what the system does. And the beautiful thing about the way it's built is it's very flexible. And so you can be helping people learn uh, anatomy or biology, music theory, uh, chemistry, history, any subject can be learned using Serigo. And so our customers span a really wide range. They're high schools and colleges, they're companies and organizations that have to train their staff, everything you can think of, uh, wide range of customers using Serigo. How is it deciding what's when to practice something or to learn something new, or as you said, to, to review mm -hmm. that? So two of the most important principles from cognitive science help make that decision. And the two principles are one, something called distributed learning, which is this idea that if you actually want to remember what you learn, you should learn or review over time. Don't cram the night before, but learn for days and days or weeks and weeks in little bite-sized pieces. Mm -hmm. And the second principle is something that you might hear described as the testing effect or retrieval practice, which is the idea that if you want to, again, learn and use information, you have to practice it and actively engage with it and not just listen to a lecture or just read a page in a book. So uh, an exercise, a practice, a quiz is an effective way to do that. When you combine those two principles, learning spaced out over time and actively practicing what you learn, you get a recipe, which is what Sarago delivers, which suggests first you need to learn something to begin with. And then over time, you want to be exposed to that information again, but in different ways. This time you're gonna practice it. You're not just gonna read it or listen to it again. And depending on how you do when you practice it, the system will have a good sense. Did you remember it? Did you understand it or did you not? And whether you know it or don't know it, the system decides how quickly to show it to you again in yet a different form, a different sort of quiz, a different sort of exercise. So practically it means for each person, we'll all begin learning the same body of material in the same way, but our schedules and what we'll spend our time doing for the next couple of days or weeks will start to look different based on how well each one of us picks up that information. How, uh, how about long-term learning? It, how, how, how long does that information stay? And, and is there some type of a, that does the AI know how long it's going to stay or? Yeah. This is the really fascinating thing. The answer is our AI, our algorithms have a really good estimate of how long you'll know or remember what you've learned. And the even cooler part is the, the way of calculating how long you'll know that information. It's not a brand new idea. This is the kind of research that's been done for over a hundred years. Sure. And some people describe it as the forgetting curve, the rate that you forget what you learned we talk about a learning curve, which is flipping that around and talking about what you need to do to learn and remember for the long term. And the fascinating thing is when you look at what it takes to remember something for months and months or years and years, rather than just for hours or days, we're just talking about engaging with that material a couple times for a couple minutes. If you spread the engagement out over a couple sessions, rather than cramming it all at once, you don't need to spend a ton of time to make sure you'll remember that new information for a really, really long time, hopefully forever. And that's the secret behind why Serigo works because of all the research that's shown, this is how the human brain works. So um, I don't know if this, this is relative or not, but how about uh, incorporating like the kinesthetic senses and emotions in that? I noticed when you speak that you illustrate everything with your hands and you express emotion when, and, and we know that these things are tied. 
to learning. Is, is there any um, element of that going on? So I'm not an expert on this corner of the research. I <laughs> believe some of those theories around the learning styles there's probably some debate in the academic community. About in learning styles, there is, but, but right. incorporating them as a unit uh, seems yeah. effective. So I, I, we, we are always thinking about what else we can do to deliver that comprehensive learning experience. Right uh -huh. now, since we're all software-based, there's not a whole lot that engages physically with our, our learners. Sure. But it would be cool if we can. And we thought about things, including virtual reality and augmented reality and new ways you could deliver part of the experience to help people engage and do things in the physical world around them. Mm -hmm. And that is really important, especially when you're learning things that can deal with doing something physical in the real world. So I think there's yeah. a lot of opportunity here. And uh, again, that goes back to why R&D is so important and is, is important to get right even when we're all remote. Right. Well, you know, I had read on your website that you were in a classicist and it talked about the, the the ancient Greek and Latin. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, are you familiar with the Memory Palace? I am, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's an incorporation of a visual-spatial, yeah. um, um, visual-spatial learning. And they were able to do these long orations uh, using, using that practice. Absolutely. So I, I think there's some in interesting things there. I hope, now that you've brought, I hope to see that in the future. Um, so what are some of the best practices gleaned from the data and for learning? Yeah, you know, a lot of the data that we capture helps reinforce how true the findings of cognitive scientists have been. In other words, I talked a little bit earlier about the research that scientists at the University of Toronto were doing on ego depletion and looking at our data, what they find is absolutely learning in short bursts is the most effective, the most uh, efficient way to learn. You learn the most and you retain it the longest when you learn in short, small bursts rather than real long dragged out sessions. That's definitely something that comes from the data. The other things we've learned are around, you know, what does it mean for people to learn quickly versus learn effectively? And we have some metrics that come out of the Serigo experience that show that just because someone may take a little bit longer to learn in the first place, by no means suggests that they haven't learned it just as well, or that they won't remember it just as long as someone who may learn something a little bit more quickly. That idea of your sort of agility in learning does not have to be correlated with the amount of mastery over the material at all. And the reality is that just speaks to how much prior knowledge one person has versus another, or other sort of uh, uh, styles as to how they learn. So rounding out the picture of what it means to learn quick versus learn well versus remember for the long term is one of the cool byproducts of the sort of data we get. So I, I wonder if people that, that it may take longer to learn a subject may, in, in a lot of cases, learn it deeper? Maybe that, or do you think that they're... You know, I think the answer is that it can be. You know, if you take two hypothetical people some person may have basically no prior knowledge that is related to what they're learning. And so in some ways they have no choice but to take longer to build that foundational level and, and kind of work their way up what they're trying to learn. Uh -huh. Someone else may have a bit of prior knowledge, may have by temperament or instinct, a bit more of a diligent mindset. Both of those people will effectively take longer to learn. Yeah. And I suspect if we looked at the data, both would walk out 
learning something well and remembering it for the long term, both would outperform, in other words, someone who might have eh, just a bit of prior knowledge, so they felt a little bit overly confident, didn't have a whole lot of diligent energy, and just quickly jumped in and then quickly ran away from the material. That person's going to do the least well, no matter how smart they are. So I think that is, to your point, it could be evidence that you know a little bit slower and steady can often be the best result for whatever reason that is to be human. Yeah, we, we see that in, in Kung Fu, that you have a, a people that have like natural athletic ability and then they'll assume they're getting something. We call them dancers because they're not, they're just dancing through the material. They're not really understanding the visualizations that's going on. They're not feeling the, they're not feeling the, the muscles working and all that. So uh, those people, at least in our art, will hit a point uh, where it becomes very difficult for them to progress. Yeah. Um, because of not to try di diving in deep and it, it's because the learning was actually too easy for them it's through this in the beginning right yeah. and that's so much of what Sarago tries to do by personalizing the experiences quickly work out just automatically what you know well and what you don't know as well and give you the right mix of things that challenge you enough to keep you engaged but also build new knowledge and not waste your time on things that you already know or don't need to spend as much time on. And getting that mix right, it's right. much easier when a, a good coach or a good teacher tells you how to focus. Or in our case, some artificial intelligence can help quickly guide you. All of that leads to a more effective experience. Yeah, is that basing on, we kind of use, we'll use a, a like a 10% fail rate. We're looking for people to be 90% successful to give them just a little bit, a little exactly. bit of challenge, but not too big. Is that, is that kind of the idea? Yep. It's funny, our, our, our scientists try to calibrate our system right in that same zone. 85 to 90% of what you do in Serigo ideally should be stuff you're gonna get right. And mm -hmm. that's part of the motivation, but also it's being in that flow of building knowledge by learning it just at the moment where you might otherwise have forgotten, but ideally just before. And if you calibrate that right, it's maximally rewarding and most effective. So it, okay, so at that point when you might have just about forgotten, how's, how's it, is that just statistically it knows? Yeah, you know, you, you run a, a basic calculation for what that forgetting curve suggests the time to forget is gonna be, and you uh -huh. update that calculation for each person. Each time they're using the system, you get more and more feedback about how well for a given bit of material that they're learning, how much they might overperform or underperform the basic rate of forgetting, and that's a, running constantly in the background calculation that becomes tailored to each person. And it's a really good guide. It's not 100% perfect, but it's going to have a really good guess as to how long it'll take for you to forget something. And then the system schedules it enough in advance that ideally you haven't forgotten much by the time you review. Okay, so it's not a standard curve. It's, 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 it's individualized. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Interesting. So, um, you talked about the, the short bursts of learning as also, is there a place for immersive learning as well? We, we, we find there is, we find the short bursts as, as very effective, but then if you can take somebody in, you know, in our case, you know, two days without, we, we've even found that, that not allowing any, any outside exposure to anything, they can't go home, they can't watch TV, they can't do anything, but staying immersed in a long period is, is, is there a place for that as well? And to use that. Yeah, I think there is. Even speaking outside of my Serigo experience, mm -hmm. like you uh, discovered, my academic background was as a classicist. I spent a lot of time learning Greek and Latin. 
And just because of where a lot of those resources are, they tend to be older, they're in physical book form. A lot of my learning had to be with a physical book and in a library and not online. It forced me to be in a more immersive, uh, slower paced form for some of my learning. And there were times when that felt really, really effective as a way to let stuff I've been learning in other ways kind of distill and uh, all come together, that focus and long time uh, spent on the task. Do you so, think is, yeah. that, is that the time to do it when you've got that foundation built from the short bursts and you've, you've got all that, that in there? I think, it, I think it can be. I think cognitive science shows that the brain is just not well suited to spending really long stretches learning something new. It, it leads to fatigue. That's yeah. just, you know, biology. But I think once you've built up that foundation, especially when by building a foundation, you have a bit more motivation, you know, you've made some progress, you have something to kind of hang on as you try to work through some exercise, that's probably a good time to spend more time, less structured time engaging with material. Fantastic. Okay, that that's great knowledge right there. So um, as a classicist, you I think you had mentioned about the way knowledge was transmitted by the Greeks and, and Latin. Do you have anything to say about about that about there's some mentions of it on your personal site. I'll, I'll tell you this much. If things like Dropbox had existed in, you know, AD 50, we'd be in a much better place. It's so amazing when you think about all this great knowledge that had been collected thousands of years ago and was transmitted in physical form, person to person, from one library to another, but at the mercy of a fire or a flood or an earthquake, it could be lost or destroyed. And that was it. It was gone. Yeah, we are so lucky today that there are other ways to replicate and distribute what we've learned, what we've written down or recorded. We are at a much lower risk of losing stuff that people have spent painstaking time to learn. That seems <clears> obvious, but it's like that's a fundamental change in how learning happens. We can now learn in our lifetime and help our kids or our grandkids or other societies get the best of that knowledge with a lot less risk than we used to. Right. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, like, like I said, the, the form of Kung Fu that we teach is very rare. And I just had the experience of meeting somebody that his instructor broke off from it in 1970. And it was really interesting to see this knowledge, you know, we pass it down through, you know, from person to person like that. Um, but that is the history of martial and, and to see that, okay, this body of knowledge was preserved in by somewhere over here. And we, we didn't know about exist. We didn't know this person existed. And it can be, a, it can be a lot of randomness or luck as to what gets remembered and what gets transmitted versus oh, what didn't, you know? Yeah. 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 I see that, that as well. And, and in our arts in, or in all of, in all of the, the fighting arts is that most of it has been lost because, you know, somebody died and didn't, didn't right. pass it, didn't pass it down. Um, what types of, uh, uh, who's using Sergo? Wide range, as mm -hmm. you had identified, mostly an age group that is high school and above. The bulk of our customers tend to be college age, every kind of college, community college, two year, four year, public, private, from Harvard Medical School to Arizona State University to Santa Rosa Junior College, big, big range. But also people that need to learn something for their work or job, formally or informally. And so that's people being trained by the U.S. Army on basic medical techniques when they join the Army. Or people who work in a call center 
and need to learn about cell phone plans or about how a certain kind of uh, equipment works. All these people need to build up the foundational knowledge efficiently, and all these people are using Serigo. So it's a really wide range, and some of it is quite creative. You know, Icon Collective is a school that teaches people music theory using Serigo, and some of it is very life-saving, you know, the medical uh, training that soldiers get, and a lot of it is just traditional academic stuff. It's a, it's a big range. Everything, right. So in, in, in typical learning, what, in, in what places is, it gonna, is a person really going to need personal attention? Where, where is the? Well, it's a fun question. Where does someone need personal attention? Because there's personal attention that you can replicate with an app like ours. There's personal attention that an app like ours can't replicate, but that maybe our app can help make happen. I'll tell you a little bit about that. So I think everyone deserves some personal attention to make the most efficient progress early on. If you're just trying to learn the basics, which can be pretty complicated, you mm -hmm. want to spend time on the bits that you don't really understand and not waste time on what you already understand. Personalizing how much time you spend on each of those pieces, that's a great time to personalize. And that you can do pretty well with an app. Sure. It's about what you recommend and when. Sometimes the reason someone is struggling is for something unrelated to the material. It's something personal going on in their life. It's uh, an undiagnosed uh, you know, learning disability or some other issue that they need to work around. And in those cases, there may be times when they would get a lot of benefit from personal attention if that teacher, mentor, coach, manager knew that they were having trouble. And often that person doesn't know. That's an area where sometimes something like Serigo can indicate with the data that someone is struggling or not making as much progress as you might expect and can be a flag to help a live human do what humans do really well, which is come in and kind of work through what actually is going on and see if there's a different strategy to help that person. So we've seen that happen. And it's really rewarding when the tools or the technology help the human do the thing that only humans can do well. Right. And it sounds like those might be situations where the human had not had the flag that they may have missed it in the first place. Exactly. Is that true? So you're going to be yep. in interesting. Interesting. So um, how are you helping the classrooms mitigate the shift to the online learning? I would say we don't have the full answer yet, partly mm -hmm. because um, Everyone is trying to figure out what they need help with. We've been reaching out to a lot of our existing customers and taking their temperature on what's proceeding smoothly and why are they struggling. And we're learning a lot from what they've told us. But generally, one thing we found is people are really interested in making remote learning more effective. That means a lot of people are thinking about tools like Serigo, and we're trying to make it easy to try out our tool and imagine different ways to run a classroom when it's virtual. And we're doing that by holding office hours a couple times a week that anyone, customer or not customer, can join. Jump in, hear from some of our team members or customers, what they use Serigo for, where it works, how they got started. A lightweight, easy way to imagine what you can do differently without forcing you to try or not try a tool. That's one thing we're doing. And you know, the other things we're doing are really trying to give people a little extra time and attention on the customer success front to make sure they feel good as they get started building out new lessons with new tools and delivering things online they didn't used to do online. And again, it kind of comes back to a human touch to help people use tools well. So that's where we're trying to focus our energy for now. Right, and what, what, how big of an effect, what do you think about um, the effect of scaling education that this is gonna have? You know, we'll, we'll see. I think 
a stat that's always been fascinating to me is when you look at, especially higher education, college level or above, online programs in the last couple of years, what you'll find is very often the institution that's offering an online course maybe enrolling students in that online course who live within 50 miles or so of the institution, which would make you think, shouldn't those people just be going to a class on campus or in person? But mm -hmm. the answer is for lots of reasons, they're choosing to learn online. Maybe it's because of a work-life balance or some other considerations or cost or other preferences they have. And so that might mean that what's gonna happen now is not a big expansion of online learning, but just an improvement in the experience. There's gonna be more attention paid to the right way to do this. It could be though that people will say, you know, I had never thought about learning online or learning not in the classroom and it worked better than I thought. And that may change how many people enroll in some of these kind of courses or how many schools offer online programs. And we could see a really nice expansion. So I don't know the answer yet, but I think it's gonna be fascinating either way. I think so too. I think, I think this is really, this whole situation is gonna have some, some long-term positive effects. Mm -hmm. I, just I, just what I've seen personally of people that have refused to jump into technology for learning are now just no question you know they have to yeah yeah absolutely and so uh, it's going to have a huge effect um, where did the idea for Sarago originally come from so the idea for Sarago came before my time the founders of the company had spent a lot of time looking at how people learn foreign languages especially who wanted to, you know, get educated overseas. And what they observed was people had a dual challenge of learning a new language and preparing to you know, do well in school somewhere else. And what they needed to do was build basic competency in the language and the new subject area and often do it in a place where, you know, they didn't have a physical class to go to. And so this was in the slightly earlier days of the internet and it felt like a perfect time to take this great research about how the brain works and this new medium of delivering experiences over the internet and build a way for people to learn more effectively, initially focus on languages and then over time broadly to, to everything. Because in the end, the brain learns the same way, whether it's learning a new language or, or any other subject area. Sure, yeah, interesting. And when, and when was that? When did it get to start? This was in the early 2000s. Oh, really? So, yeah been working at this for quite some time then that's right that's uh, that i'm got some amazing knowledge built up that's fantastic is there anything yeah. anything else you want to tell us about e e any of these subjects remote working remote learning what haven't we covered that... i think i think we've we've covered far and wide a lot of the things that i've observed happening and you know i think just my view on this is there's a lot of great tools out there a lot of ways to try to teach skills or knowledge online. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that for folks that are kind of engaging with you in your show, they're, they might be interested and they should go out and explore. There's a lot of good stuff out there and now maybe people have the time to look around and try stuff out. So yeah, that was a good time to do it. Yeah, and I see a lot of people are. I see just people mentioning all kinds of different things online. So um, this is, I, I see a real big positive change happening here. So uh, in, a, in a terrible situation, so. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. This has been a fantastic interview and I'm sure everyone will enjoy it. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure, thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to the Learning Success Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We also hope you have learned something useful, something that you can take back and improve your life with today. If you would like to say thank you, the best way for you to do that is to share this podcast with a friend. Help us help others along this journey. And if you haven't already, please rate and comment on the podcast. Every rating helps us and helps this podcast get out to more people. We appreciate it and we appreciate you. Thank you again and make today a great day. No one should have to live with a learning difficulty.